we supposed to get married? I'm going to just swipe I just want somebody to share. The next thing I know, I got a call from the former senator of Wyoming, who's an old man in his 80s. You can keep waiting for the fairy tale, or you can get on board with the new rules of relationships. If you've read my advice in the LA Times, then you know this ain't your mama's love advice. This is Dates and Mates with Damona Hoffman. Hello, lovers. Welcome to another episode of Dates and Mates presented by Text Now, my most recommended app for daters who are a little cautious about giving out their phone number. Text Now gives you a free second phone number so you don't have to worry about giving out your number. You can just go out there and live your best love life. Let's jump into the show. I have a super, super exciting guest to introduce to you. Anna Sale is the host of WNYC's hit podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. It's one of my favorite podcasts, and it's one of my inspirations even for Dates and Mates. And she is here to talk about how having difficult conversations around these things that we have so much stress about, death, sex, money, identity, so many of these topics that we avoid in dating and relationships are actually the kinds of conversations and the kind of topics that can bring you closer together. Plus, she'll share some of her own stories, including how she moved on after heartbreak to find love again in an unexpected place. But before we talk to Anna, we have those headlines like why you shouldn't believe all the negative press you read about dating apps. And does Kourtney Kardashian's new boo have the hots for Kim? He says no, his ex says yes. Then in Dear Demona, I'll answer your questions, including how to set boundaries with breadcrumbers and tips on how to make first dates fun, even over Zoom. I can't wait for this episode, and I can't wait to dive into this dish. D's dating dish. Nancy Jo Sales has hit all of the headlines. You may know her as the person who wrote the article that led to the movie The Bling Ring. She also directed a documentary for HBO called Swiped, Hooking Up in the Digital Age in 2018. She talked to a lot of the top dating app CEOs and founders, and she's come to the conclusion now in her new book, Nothing Personal, My Secret Life in the Dating App Inferno, that uh, there's nothing to be gained from dating apps. She also believes that there's been a corporate takeover of dating and basically she's calling dating apps big dating and that the companies are exploiting users for gain. I think you can know where I might land on this conversation, but I think the important thing is the why and what we can learn from it. And she's written several articles uh, this week, coincidentally the week that her book came out about Various things that frustrate her with dating apps. Apps promise to revolutionize dating, but for women, they're mostly terrible. I became addicted to dating apps. She also was talking about how she, as a woman in her 50s, isn't really attracting anyone her age. But now there's all of these 20 and 30 something year old guys who are landing in her DMs, chatting her up and maybe even taking her on dates. And I think we're all looking for a villain, you know, in, in when things don't go our way. Our predisposition to storytell is to look for, well, who's the bad guy here? What is wrong? And Nancy Jo Sales has landed on the, the villain being dating apps. When she was talking about dating apps being mostly terrible for women, she talks about the normalization of abuses, which would have been considered appalling in 
other supposedly less progressive eras. So like things like unsolicited dick pics, harassing messages, non-consensual sharing of nudes. And it just made me take a step back and say, where else does this show up in our life? Because it's not just it's not just the dating apps. And it's easy to point the finger at the dating app because that's where critical mass is and that's where we're having that experience right now. But I don't know about you. I'm also having that experience on Twitter. Uh, I've had that experience on Facebook. I've had that experience in groups. I've had that experience in real life. Still, in today's world, I think we are not dealing with the underlying issue, which is lack of education around sexual assault, sexual violence, lack of support around women who have been sexually assaulted. And I think we are, if we're focusing on what are the dating apps doing and why why are we having so much trouble with the dating apps, we're missing the point and we're missing the real opportunity, which is starting these conversations much sooner. Just because it's happening on the dating apps doesn't mean it's not happening elsewhere. And for me, I felt a lot safer being on an app where there was some information who could connect you to that person, an IP address, an email, geolocating data, versus no information at all when, you know, in olden times we would meet people out and about at bars where we had no connection, where we didn't know where they lived, where we didn't have their actual name or where they were located. So I I encourage Nancy Joe and anyone else who has the knee-jerk reaction to point to dating apps and, and say, uh, dating apps are addictive and therefore dating apps are bad, or dating apps, I got a dick pic and therefore dating apps are bad. And to really step back and say, what is happening here on a global scale? Are, are we overall addicted to technology? Am I addicted to that feeling of being liked and wanted? And is that preventing me from going deeper and figuring out what I really need and behaving on a dating app in accordance with that? Or is there something else that I could be doing to advocate for women who have been sexually assaulted rather than just finger wagging at dating apps, which I think have ultimately brought us a lot more opportunity and have impacted dating culture and especially for women, given us dating options and opportunities that never would have been there before and created a chance for us to bridge the gap between different worlds and find love on a deeper level than just whoever we happen to casually come across in our daily life. And I'm more interested in doing that and looking at what we can learn from the way culture is shifting, then pointing fingers and looking for the villain. I know we all want to tell a story, but, and I think we can tell ourselves a more optimistic story and a more thoughtful story than the one that I've heard from the many articles that have picked up Nancy Joe Sales' book. Things have been heating up between Kourtney Kardashian and Travis Barker. You may have heard that the eldest Kardashian is seeing the drummer from Blink-182, who coincidentally I actually covered in an article about how he was on Bumble giving away passes to his show, and it was confusing users who wanted to connect with him. I did that article for the LA for LA Mag a few, a couple years ago, but now he's real. he really is looking for love. He had 
quite a public breakup with a woman named Shanna Mochler. She used to be, she was Miss USA and they have two kids together. They broke up in 2008. That's when their divorce officially was finalized. And then, of course, all of the info started coming out. Shanna Mochler publicly claimed way back then that one of the reasons that her family broke up was because Travis was cheating with Kim Kardashian. So Kim and Travis have denied that they hooked up, but that doesn't mean that he can deny saying some things that I found a little a little suspicious. He said before that he couldn't keep his eyes off Kim when they were friends years ago, but he wrote in his book that he never touched her during his, you know, on again, off again marriage. And even more recently, Travis Barker said in an interview with Us Weekly that he had an instant attraction to Kim. He said, how could you not stare at Kim? Mind you, I enjoyed hanging out with Paris Hilton, parentheses, but I love curvy girls, he told the magazine. He said, Kim was eye candy. I was no way disrespectful to Paris, but I couldn't keep my eyes off Kim. And that just all turned my stomach, I have to say, because I'm... Wondering how Courtney can be okay with this, especially knowing that Kim is approaching a divorce now. So before she was totally off limits, I mean, I don't think she would give Travis Barker the time of day. Um, and Courtney's not really known for her great taste in men anyway, <laughs> Scott Disick, but they are, they're in a relationship and I feel like it would be a little uncomfortable to know that either in the past or in the present, your guy really had the hots for your sister. Shanna Mochler has inserted herself all the way in the conversation. So the first thing I thought was, does Shanna Mochler have a reality show coming? Does Shanna Mochler have a book? Um, so put a pin in that and then uh, talk to me in a couple months when you see that her book was announced <laughs> or her reality show was announced. Because... In a way, it's ancient history. I mean, I know that they had, they have a family together and she still has to deal with him because he is the father of her kids. But like, Shanna, move on, move on. This is, he's creating his own little <laughs> web of drama right now that really you and your kids don't, you don't need to get caught up in that. So I think Travis is in a little bit of a predicament because I, I don't see a way out of this that's going to be successful. This isn't just like girl code, don't hook up with my friend. This is like your sister, your blood sister. And it makes me think, is Courtney just like the replacement Kim? Is this what he's he's doing just until he can get Kim to pay attention to him. I don't think Kim would do that to Courtney, but I have to say none of this is good. This is not, this is not a situation that you want to find yourself in. And I can't imagine that being with Travis Barker, who has had this horrific breakup with Shanna Mochler, who has been on again, off again with so many different people. I, I just don't see that it's worth the drama. And I feel like it's going to add a lot of tension to the relationship that really shouldn't be there if you are looking for lasting love. Well, I'm sure that Courtney and Travis have some hard conversations <laughs> coming up for them. And maybe if they listen to my guest for this week, Anna Sale, who will be talking about her new book, How to Talk About Hard Things, 
they might have a roadmap to move forward. Coming right up after this NSAL of Death, Sex, and Money podcast. We're back, and I'm here with Anna Sale. She is the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Death, Sex, and Money by WNYC. Anna was the winner of a 2018 Webby Award for Best Interview Show before developing Death, Sex, and Money. As a journalist, Anna covered politics for nearly a decade. She has contributed to Fresh Air with Terry Gross and also This American Life. And now she's written a fantastic new book, called Let's Talk About Hard Things, an empathetic examination of the most challenging aspects of our lives and how communication about even taboo issues can bring us closer to our loved ones. Please help me give big smooches to my guest, Anna Sale. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for you to be here. You you really paved the way for shows like Dates and Mates with Death, Sex, and Money. And now you're continuing to pave the way because you have a new book, mm-hmm. Let's Talk About Hard Things, which is fabulous. And I I really enjoy it because you you don't just talk about death, sex, and money. You talk about your own experiences and and you've even added a couple of uh of focuses for the book in family. Mm-hmm. and also in identity. Why did you mm-hmm. feel like it was important to to expand the focus out when we're talking about hard things? I mean, family and identity, they're not in the name of our podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, but they come up a lot. And I wanted to be really explicit that family is, for so many of us, when we have tensions or are feeling tensions within those particular sets of relationships, they're uniquely hard conversations. Talking about family is hard and talking within family can be hard. And then I wanted to include identity because um, I just felt like not including it would be like dishonest. Uh, I feel like it is in conversations, particularly across identity differences, where I can feel the most self-conscious. So I wanted to name that and say like, that's how you're supposed to feel in an identity conversation. That means you're doing it right um, because you're acknowledging that there are gaps in what you can intuit about the way someone else moves through the world. The way we are identified by others profoundly affects you know, our experiences. And so I wanted to have a particular focused look at that as well. It's interesting in the context of this conversation that you did include that and you broadened it out because as a relationship coach, I find myself talking about those themes more and more. And even as a person of color, sometimes like I just did an interview talking about expanding your dating criteria to people of different races and what that means and the tough conversations that you have to have Mm -hmm. around identity. But I actually think that that's an element that is present in any relationship, even if you are with someone of the same race, really the culture and the way that people move through the world. And you were talking about the way people perceive you. Mm -hmm. It's a factor in every, every tough conversation, every dating situation and relationship that you have. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I, I, you know, an identity, when you say identity, it means so many things all at once. It doesn't just mean our race. It doesn't just mean our gender or our sexuality, our class background. It can mean all of these things all at once. And so I actually, there's a, there's a couple that I profile in that chapter, who's a heterosexual couple. And it's about just how even figuring out how to talk about gender and sexism and expectations they have for one another in their household 
has been really challenging since they've gotten married because they got together with this idea of like, oh, we're going to be this egalitarian couple who runs our life um, where everybody shares equal domestic labor. And it hasn't always worked like that. Can you guess which person has found herself doing more domestic labor? <laughs> um, but but part, of, <laughs> part of what they've had to talk about is both, you know, she, she's felt really like, angry about it because she's like, you don't see all this that I'm doing. You don't see when we need to get groceries. You don't see when the laundry needs to be done. And I've been trained to see all of this. Part of their conversations about identity have also been her having to hear back from him. I hear you. I hear you that I need to notice more and be more aware. And also the expectations that you have for yourself about how laundry and how often laundry ought to be done that's you bringing your own baggage about what you're supposed to be like as a good woman in a who in a household. And so that was hard for her to hear because she just wanted to blame him for not being uh, feminist enough. And, and so they had to sort of work out all the ways these systems of identity and the expectations that we have for each other and one another are are shaped by these big identity issues and, and where we for see sure. like we, where we see we fit. For sure. And it, that is, it's actually reminding me of a stat that we talked about on the show a few years ago that when when men share household responsibilities, they actually have more sex. So just a reminder, guys, on that front that, yeah, if you do the laundry every once in a while, you know, you, you might get a little freaky. But let's let's turn the conversation since we brought up the the sex word. Let's turn the conversation to sex. This is an interesting time, Anna, to be writing this book and talking about hard things, which you've done on death, sex and money since the beginning. But man, it must just be the conversations around sex must be so charged for the people that you're speaking to on the show. And for those who don't know the podcast, first of all, like listen to it. But you, you <laughs> hear, it's a lot of real people's stories. It's not just like talking to celebrities. Well, how's your sex life? It's like mm -hmm. really deep conversations. And this this year, well, mm -hmm. there's like the two extremes, right? The people who are always with their partner or their family. And then there's the extreme of the people that are starved for the touch and affection. What interesting stories have you seen coming up on the show on how people are navigating through this re-entry into sexual exploration? Or did we never leave? Maybe things are happening that people are telling you that they're not telling me. All of us have probably that one friend who never stopped doing the hookups and just didn't tell anyone. You know, I think that there's a lot of different things going on. And I think even within one person, there's a lot going on. You know, for example, there's that feeling of like, I need touch. I also feel like I've lost time. I need to get back out there it's a hard time. And if you feel a lot of pressure and mixed feelings, that's what a lot of people are feeling. Mm, yeah, certainly mixed feelings. And then for those of us who are locked in with our partners and our kids, <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> my husband and I had, we had a situation yesterday. My office is, is in the garage and like, we tried to like lock ourselves in 
in the middle of the day away from our kids who haven't gone back to school. And it didn't go well, Anna. It did not work. They're like, why is yeah. the door locked? Why are the curtains closed? I was like, oh my gosh, I can't get away from them. Yeah. I mean, you, I, I, I'm in your boat. I have two little kids and one, one has been in preschool since September. So thank goodness she's been out of the house. Um, and my husband has been going to his office. So we have had a little bit more space, but what we've what we have learned what i've learned again is like oh when you practice having basically the same argument in different ways every two weeks or so because you're just in each other's face you know you just get to know each other's patterns and we can metabolize the conflict a little quicker because it's like okay this is familiar territory this is this is us playing out this the dynamic that we have yet again in 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 this latest argument <laughs> Sometimes these hard conversations do need to happen in increments. And sometimes you improve the messaging a little bit as you go. And then sometimes you also just figure out, you hear different things. I've also heard you say, Anna, that you're a big fan of stopping talking. And mm -hmm. I've said that before, that that's a real useful tool on dates. How have you seen it uh, be helpful in having these, these hard conversations? Well, I think it, it, in a lot of different ways. I mean, first of all, I think you can tell when you're in a conversation that has gotten either too hot or too tender, or it's exploring something that you're not really clear about yourself. And it's okay to say like, I, I think we've talked about this enough for now. Can we come back to this later? Like just giving yourself and your conversation partner, the like permission to just like, it doesn't mean you're giving up or surrendering or not doing the work. It means that you're being respectful of the effort it takes and the emotion it can take to dig into this together. I had this idea that like, oh, if I, if we talk about it, we, if we talk about our feelings and really commit to it, like whenever there's a conflict in a relationship that we can solve this problem. I had this like ultimate faith in the ability of conversation to, to fix things if you really committed to it. Um, and I write in the book about the end of my first marriage where I felt like we must not be doing this right because we're not resolving this fundamental conflict we have, which was we discovered we wanted different things. Um, I wanted kind of a house and kids and I was 30 and we, I wanted stability and to build a family. And he wanted to make art and travel the world and, and live a different sort of life. And that was really sad and hard and took us a while to finally admit to each other in these hard conversations. And then finally to, to sort of accept like, oh, we feel we're pulling at each other and having this conflict because we have this difference. And what the hard conversations led us to was the realization that our marriage needed to end. That didn't mean it wasn't an effective hard conversation. Like that, those hard conversations did their job. And I think um, often when it's, when you're figuring out, do we end this relationship? Should we break up? Do we have a future? If you're someone who who's going to dig in and do the work because relationships are important. You can feel like you're failing, but I just want to tell you some, some hard conversations are successful even when they end in disagreement or a lack of resolution. Like that's information you needed to exchange with one another. Yeah. And that certainly happens a lot <laughs> on dates and in, in new, in new 
situations with, as you're figuring out somebody's pace and you're figuring out how you communicate with someone. And in the last year, we've had the added challenge of also having to connect this way, you know, via video chat or um, text. And I'm often talking about time shifted communication and how challenging Mm -hmm. it is to really hear the other person when you have that gap in between. And you brought up that you're, you're the end of your first marriage, but having read the book, I know that the start of your, your second was not quite smooth. (laughs) And when you met, you were in, you were in different places, right? Oh, so many, in so many different ways. Like we were in different geographic places. We were in different emotional places. I mean, I was not sturdy when I met my husband, Arthur. I, I was not long out of out of my divorce. My marriage had just ended, my first marriage. And I was in that like early phase of just being like, holy moly, I'm a single woman. For anyone who's been in a long relationship and then you realize you're single, there, I, to me, I remember that like looking up and learning to scan rooms again, you know, because I'd been in a monogamous relationship for so long. I hadn't I'd stopped like checking out people on the subway or, you know, in the coffee shop and, and like realizing all of a sudden, like, oh, I get to like be on the prowl. Like this, this is kind of exciting and different. I was not trying to impress him. I was just like, oh, you're a handsome man. Let's see where this conversation goes. And I was very open with him about like, um, that I, I was like in a big period of transition and, and I, I, I wasn't trying to be cool. I was just being really open. I certainly didn't feel like, oh my gosh, there's my new husband. But it also took a long time for me to know whether to trust that I wasn't just on a rebound, you know, that I could trust that that I wasn't just afraid to be alone. And in so many of our hard conversations earlier in our relationship, um, he was also living in Wyoming and I was living in New York City and he is a scientist who studies large mammals and I was a reporter who was covering city politics in New York City at the time. So I was like, I, how does this make sense? <laughs> you know? Um, and so I was just, I would get caught on this, like, what are we doing spending time together? Like, what are, what is this? Like, does this have, you know, I don't think this has a future. And Arthur, to his credit, in those early months, he would just say, look, like you don't, all you have to decide is if you want to talk to me on the phone tomorrow. Like, that's it. Like, you don't have to, you're not promising me anything and you can be where you are, which is what I heard, which I so appreciated. Um, which of course made me think like, who is this man who can say, who has the confidence to say that that is attractive, but I, I would say, yeah, (laughs) but what was so The gift of that Mm -hmm. to me was that I, when we had hard conversations, I think so often with like define the relationship conversations, like we're trying to um, contain the uncertainty, you know, we're trying to make sure we're not going to get hurt. We're just like, what are we to each other? And what Arthur let me be for those first months and then the first two years, really, we were together. He let me like, just kind of say like, I don't know. I, I, I'm building back my life here. I don't really know. And and he was figuring out his life. He was finishing grad school. He was figuring out where, where his next job was going to be. There was a lot that was up in the air. And it can be really hard to have a relationship when two people don't know 
how much their lives are going to be aligned. But we just kind of, um, by not forcing a knowingness or making making me say like, are you in or are you out? Like before I was ready, um, it allowed us to sort of grow into whatever next phase we were going to go into together. Um, and then I had this real, now I look back on that time and I'm like, oh my gosh, now I, I have all of these examples of times where like we figured out how to just help each other through these big life transitions. And that's a really nice thing to know in a relationship that you can, you have a partner that, that can help you figure out things together. Mm, that's so beautiful. And I really just want to reiterate something you said when he told you all you need to decide is that you want to talk to me tomorrow. That really, I think it sounds like it pulled you both back into the moment. And that's something yeah. I'm always trying to convey on the show that I think there are elements of that and things we've talked about before in the listening and, and, and in the figuring out where you are in the tough conversation, like so many times we're trying to create a certain outcome. We're trying to mm. push to that finish line, whether it's like the relationship or the baby or, you know, yeah. any of the other hard things we're talking about. But when, when you're staying in the moment and you're just choosing day by day to be with somebody, then the it seems like it lets the path unfold naturally rather than one of you trying to push it in, in a certain direction. Yeah. I mean, it was such a gift. And I, I will say like, I certainly didn't have the like wherewithal to, if I, if it were reversed, I would not have been able to say that to him. Like I was in a phase, I was in my early thirties. I wanted to be a parent. I was like, what is happening, Anna? Like you, I felt there was some time pressure going on. So I get I get how hard that can be when you're trying to, you just feel like you got to like make some decisions and lock some things down. Um, but I wasn't ready to do that. And so that he was able to, to be with me through that figuring out. So you had to eventually decide if you were going to be together <laughs> and he yeah. was in Wyoming and you're in New York city. Yeah. Is there a moment, Anna, where you were like, okay, we have to take this leap. Or I'm going to have to make a big change in my life to make this work. Yeah. When did that decision unfold? We broke up. Like we were together for two years and then we broke up. Even as I describe his patience with me at a certain point, he was like, okay, like we've, we've been, we've now been, it's been two years of us figuring out like, are you in or are you out? This is where it gets weird. The next thing I know, um, I got a call on my cell phone. I was covering politics at the time. I get a call on my cell phone from the former senator of Wyoming, uh, who's an old man in his 80s. I don't know if you know this story. This is weird. <laughs> so this, no, but I'm this loving guy, it. This guy, Alan Simpson, I had covered him during the Obama administration. Arthur had written him a letter uh, appealing to him to intervene on Arthur's behalf and give me a call. So, which is like weird. <laughs> like who would think to do that? And he had this like cuckoo bananas idea. And he's like, I thought it would make you laugh. I thought it would like change up the dynamic. And, and he also said like, if this was really important to me and if I wasn't willing to just like put it all out there and humiliate myself and try to, for this relationship, like, you know, it, what's stopping me? Like, I'm just going to do this. So he wrote that letter and then 
Um, I talked to Alan Simpson and I didn't, Arthur didn't know this and I didn't know this. Alan Simpson at the time had been married almost 60 years to a wonderful woman named Anne. Uh, and Anne was in the background when Alan Simpson called me and, and is like saying things. And I'm like, well, what's Anne think I should do? You know, and it, it was just this like, and they like kind of, I mean, it, it's, it's such a strange story because they were like the perfect like relationship guardian angels because they were just like, look, we don't know what's going on with you all. Like, but we will tell you like relationships are hard. Like here's when we did couples counseling through our church. Like here's what was hard when Alan was in Washington and Anne had to be back in Wyoming when her mom got sick. Like they just like uh, just gave me in particular this idea of a, of a long view of a relationship and, and what it can be like when you have a partner who you can problem solve with together. So, so long story short, you know, we decided to get back together and then we got married two years later. We've got two little kids. We like, he got a job at university. We moved across the country you know, I worked remotely from my team in New York and we're doing it. That is, it is such a testament to just, just to having to put the faith in. I don't even know what you'd put your faith, put your faith in Alan Simpson and Ann Simpson. But, you know, just to, there does come a time where you literally just have to make a leap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody wants that guarantee you were talking yeah. about. And there are no guarantees in life or in love. And it's like some point you just you just got to choose. And then you have to ride the wave before you go. We, a lot of people are now moving from these online conversations or not dating at all to um, some folks have heard me say on the show this is going to be the hottest dating summer of the year. Yeah. OK, Cupid is saying July 4th. That's the time when people will be vaccinated or partially vaccinated, setting up dates. And, you know, you've said that um, small talk is going to be a minefield uh, after this (laughs) pandemic. Any words of wisdom in how we can move into this next phase as we ultimately are going to need to move offline and make new connections with both people from the past and, and with strangers? I think small talk can be a minefield if you let it, and it also can be, holy moly, like there's a lot to talk about on a first date right now. It's just like, what was the last year like for you? What did you notice? What shifted for you? What was hard about it? What was good about it? When I think about what small talk can do, like I really think that you can use those little openings in small talk, just kind of challenge yourself to sort of not, you know, say some of the stuff that's a little bit, just a little bit like more vulnerable and open and see what that opens up because that's what dating is about. It's about finding out who this person is and whether there's someone you want to spend more time with and them finding that out about you. And I think that often with dating, we have this expectation of just like wanting to be cool and wanting to make sure the person is going to think we're attractive and forget that like, oh, there's like a, a discerning, a discernment process that also needs to be happening on the date. Like, does this match up? And in what ways does it match up? Like, maybe this seems like a really fun person to spend some time with in this hot back summer. And like, I'm into that. I think a really nice sentence to keep in mind. And this is, I was, I was told this by a, um, 
gay sex worker and porn performer uh, in in my book, like the just using thinking of the concept of like, what are you into? You know, what are you up for? Um, which can be really useful for figuring out what kind of physical intimacy you might want to have. But it also is this like kind of like easy, like a light jacket way of saying like, huh, what are you noticing? Why are you on this date? What are you doing out here in these dating streets? You know, <laughs> like <laughs> that can be, who knows what you might discover. You might match up in one way with someone like, and it's not going to be a long-term thing, but it's a really fun couple of nights out, you know, or you might discover um, that your hot vac summer fling ends up being the person you have two kids with in a couple years down the line, like I did with my husband, Arthur. (laughs) You never know. You You never never know know what's out there. As long as you're willing, you're willing to have the uh, hard conversations and to listen and to stay in the moment. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your story and sharing some pieces of your book. Let's talk about hard things. Everybody pick it up. And, uh, and we barely, we barely scratched the surface. There's still money and there's still death and there's still so much more in the book for everyone to discover. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you also for death, sex and money and continuing to make that podcast. Sure. Thank you for having me and good luck, everybody out there. Have fun. We will put the Dates and Mates Amazon link in the show notes to Anna's book. Let's talk about hard things. Then after the break, I'll be answering your questions in Dear Demona, like... This guy is a walking red flag and won't respect my boundaries. What do I do? And how to make a first date more casual and less like an interview. We'll be right back with those questions. Welcome back. I am so excited to be here answering your questions in the next segment. Dear Damona. Damona, help me. This one was sent to me on Instagram from a listener named V. V says, I'm currently being breadcrumbed by a guy. I told him whatever we were doing wasn't working. He's still fighting to be my friend slash have me in his life. How do I uphold my boundaries? I have the hope that he'll change his mind, but deep down, I know he's not the one and I should move on. Any tips for being better at cutting people out? I have a hard time blocking or holding my ground, always trying to be nice, which is great for them, but sucks for me. V, I got to tell you, sister, you answered your own question. <laughs> That's what happens sometimes on the Dates and Made show. You said to me, I know he's not the one and I should move on. So that's your answer right there. It's not about being nice. It's not about um, anything that he is doing or what he wants. Great. He wants to be your friend. Great. He wants to have you in his life. Great for him. But it's up to you. You choose whether you want to be his friend. You choose who you want to have in your circle. And, you know, he's breadcrumbing because he's getting his need met. He's dangling these little carrots out for you and giving you that rush of endorphins when he calls or texts or when you get to see him finally. And then when he disappears, He rips it all away and gives you actually another emotional event, which further adds to the bond between you because then you're trying to see him again so that you can come out on top of the situation. So you will not only save face, you will also gain more power internally. 
by holding your ground and by respecting that boundary. And when you say something like, I'm always trying to be nice, a lot of times the experiences that we have when we are young imprint upon us. And if you were in a household, I'm just I'm just going to throw it out there. Maybe this won't resonate for you. Maybe it'll be for somebody else. But if you were in a household where you were expected to behave a certain way, to meet a parent's unrealistic expectations, or you were held to a certain academic standard or some sort of bar that you had to clear in order to receive love, you're going to be chasing that until you get aware of the pattern and take a decisive action to be able to change that narrative for yourself. So I'm going to reframe something for you here. The most compassionate thing you can do for another person, if you do not see a future for them, is to let them go. So whether you are trying to chase this feeling of what it's like when he is into you again, or you are just trying to not hurt his feelings... And the unintended consequence of that is that you're hurting your own feelings. You owe it to him and yourself to be clear about what you expect or what you see as the future for this relationship, which you've already told me, is nil. I know you said you have a hard time blocking or holding your ground. I don't know that you need to block. I'm all about this empathetic dating now and do unto others, right, as you would like to have them do unto you. But holding your ground, we have to reframe this, especially as women. We have to reframe that being clear, being direct, having a boundary, holding your ground is not being a mean girl. It is not being a bitch. It is not uh, something that keeps you from having love. It's something that builds your self-love and really helps to put parameters around who you will allow into your circle, who you will allow to make you feel a certain way, who you want to be close to you, and it will keep those who continue to hurt you again and again and again. And these this breadcrumbing situation, you know, we, we kind of laugh it off and it's like, you know, it's a cute little saying in a headline, but it's hurtful, V. It's hurtful. And he's re-injuring you every time you allow him to do that. So let this be the moment. Let this be the kick in the pants to say, this is the, this is the moment where I'm going to hold this boundary and see what happens. And I promise you, when you get on the other side of it and you really do hold that boundary and you see how much more powerful you feel in expressing yourself, that's the feeling that you are going to chase. And it's going to bring a higher caliber or higher intent person into your life the next time. CT asks, any tips on how to make a first date, especially on video chat, feel less like an interview? Of course, this is one of my favorite topics. And uh, it's a little bit different depending on how you've connected. So I'm just going to assume to begin that you've met from a dating app and you were like, let's have a first date over video chat because um, COVID's still a thing. And Now, you know very little about this person, depending on which app you're on, but you have a few pictures, maybe a few answers to a few questions or a paragraph bio. So first, I would reread that and make a list of the things that you're curious about. Now, you're not necessarily going to take this curiosity list to the date with you and be like, oh, dog, info about his dog, check. Uh, Skiing, check. Travel goals, check. 
life goals. No, you're not going to do that. You are just going to use them as jumping off points into the conversation. Another hot tip for video chat dating is turn your own video off. What? Yes, you can do it on Zoom. You can do it on on most apps. Uh, Good luck on FaceTime. But (laughs) some of the apps that use video chat feature allow you to do that. But that's why I like Zoom. One, it's anonymous. So you can send them a link and it's not necessarily connected to your phone or your number. You know, text now. Hello. You can also use text now. But um, if you use Zoom, you can also minimize your video. So you're not looking at yourself because when we do that, it makes us very self-conscious. And uh, I don't have to be the one to tell you that everyone gets really self-conscious on dates. So if you're watching back like how you look and how he's reacting to the things that you say and and you're caught up in that stew, you're not going to be able to be in the moment. And that's the next way to make it feel less like an interview is that you got to think of it more as a flow of completely being led by curiosity. He says one thing, and then what does that dovetail into for you? How can you have a personal share inspired by what he said? The other thing I would recommend to make it feel like an, less like an interview is to gamify the date a little bit. Give yourself an activity. You would normally have this in an, in an offline date. You would have at least the room, the people around you, the um, activity that you're involved in to comment on. So give yourself that. And whether it's just like conversation starter cards or it's... Um, sip and paint night you're going to do or you're going to play a word game or even just like a simplified version of 20 questions or truth or dare I don't know truth or actually no that's too much too much for a first date but you know make it fun make it light and fun and you know I've heard from some people that they've suggested this to people that they met online and that they're like I their dates are like, I don't want to play that game. That sounds too much. That tells you a lot about the person. If you're like, hey, I want to make this really fun. I want us to both have a really great time. And they're like, "Mm, I don't know. That sounds like a lot of work and I'm really nervous. I don't know. Is that a person that you want to spend a first date with? Or does that tell you that that person maybe is a little bit too rigid to be able to consider your point of view? You know, I'm always reading into things, but if I'm not here to read into things for you, then who else is going to do it? I hope that's helpful for you, CT, and I hope all of you enjoyed episode 362 of Dates and Mates. Don't forget to pick up Anna's book. Let's talk about hard things on Amazon or at your local bookstore. I love my local bookstore. Shout out to Chevalier's support local bookstores, but also if you want to buy it off of Amazon, that's cool. We got a special little link in the show notes for you to pick it up. I would love to hear your questions. You like listening to the questions, right? I know you have questions too, and I want to hear them. You can reach out to me on any of the socials at Demona Hoffman. You can send me a DM with a voice memo or just write out your question there. Alternatively, you can leave me a voicemail at my 24-7 voicemail number, and that number is 424 246 
I'll be back again next week with my friend Saskia Nelson, who is the founder of Hey Saturday, a company that helps you take better online dating photos. So I think you know what we're going to be talking about. Until then, I wish you happy dating.